Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One year ago, Portland and much of the Pacific Northwest experienced an unprecedented and deadly heat wave. As many as a thousand people died across the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. Multnomah County saw upwards of a hundred people die due to the heat. Was it a sign of things to come or a one-off event? I'm Andrew Thien and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Cale Williams, who covers breaking news and the environment for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We talked about the heat dome, what it may say about our climate future, why kids are so stressed about the situation, and much more. Here's our conversation. Cale Williams, thanks for coming back on the show. Happy to be here. Cale, we typically don't talk uh, when there's cheery things to talk about, and today we're talking about, uh, you know, one year ago, the deadly heat dome, it was 100 and approaching 118 degrees in Portland. Remind us how bad it was and, and how many people died in Oregon and Multnomah County or just in the broader region. Yeah, so late June of last year, what meteorologists refer to as a heat dome settled over the entire region, uh, Oregon, Washington, parts of British Columbia. Uh, I believe it was June 26th, uh, temperatures in Portland reached 108. That was an all-time record. The next day, they were 112, another all-time record. And on, I believe it was the 28th, they reached 116, uh, highest temperature ever recorded in Portland. Three all-time records, three days in a row. It was not the hottest place in the area. The state of Oregon set its all-time highest temperature of 119. I should say it tied, uh, going back to a record in 1898 outside of Madras. There are areas up in British Columbia that got up to 121. Seattle got up to 108, I believe. Uh, So it was very hot everywhere. The death toll was pretty staggering. More than 100 people died in Oregon. uh, And there are some estimates that region-wide, the death toll was close to 1,000. At the time when this was happening, it was just another surreal moment and years of them. But now that we have a little bit of time, you took a look at how significant or how abnormal this was. What did you find? So I talked to uh, a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is run by the Department of Energy down in California, and he's been studying climate change attribution for about 30 years. And that is sort of the study of you know, figuring out what role climate change plays in these types of extreme weather events. His name is Michael Weiner, and he was a lead author on one of the United Nations' most recent climate change reports. Like I said, he's been doing this for about 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, and he was pretty shocked. I talked to him right before the heat dome last year to kind of get an idea of what we would be looking at, and his predictions were pretty spot on. Uh, so I called him back to see what he's learned in the year since, and Climate change definitely played a role in the heat dome. 
they're still trying to figure out exactly what that role was. This was a confluence of extremely rare weather events. Uh, it started with a cyclone that formed in the Gulf of Alaska about a week before the hot temperatures came to Portland. In the aftermath of that cyclone, which is essentially you know a wet weather system swirling around an area of low pressure, uh, an mm-hmm. anti-cyclone formed, which is the opposite, which is a weather system swirling around an area of high pressure. And what that high pressure does is it prevents heat from escaping into the atmosphere, which is usually how heat dissipates. And so you've got this area of high pressure sitting in the atmosphere, keeping the heat right at ground level. Mm -hmm. It's also pushing air down in a phenomenon called subsidence, where as the the air is pushed down, it compresses and grows hotter. So as that moved over the region, it also coincided with an offshore flow, which brought hot temperatures in from the east side of the Cascades. All of this came over the region as we were sitting in a drought. And usually there is some moisture in the soil and the plant life. And when heat comes in, that evaporates and you know provides a moderating effect to heat. Uh, We did not have that moisture like we sometimes do. And that just further exacerbated the heat that came in. There's a tendency whenever something bad happens, um, which seems to happen quite a bit these days, to think this is just our fate. We're bound to see this happen again and again. Is there any sense of whether this could happen again? Or was this just the, the confluence of all these weather patterns that you just mentioned made it anomalous? Well, the answer to that is a little bit tricky. The events that led to the heat dome, the cyclone, the anti-cyclone, the offshore winds, the drought, for all of those things to line up again is highly unlikely. Uh, They were very rare weather events in and of themselves, and for all of them to coincide at the same time, the odds of that happening are very slim. That being said... I talked to the Oregon State climatologist, Larry O'Neill, who works out of Oregon State. And, you know, he said that obviously the the temperatures that came with the heat dome um, garnered the most attention, and rightly so. I mean, there were a lot of deaths, there was infrastructure damage, a lot of natural systems were, were disrupted. But one thing that he was paying a lot of attention to was just the sheer heat that we saw for the rest of the summer. There were a ton of cities that set records for 90 degree days. Portland was tied for the third most, had 24 days above 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, Burns had 61. Klamath Falls had 53. Eugene and Salem had 41 and 42 respectively. All of those are the most number of 90 degree days that they've ever had. And so it's not just these three days of abnormally high heat that we saw. It was the rest of the summer two, where we just saw these long stretches of temperatures above 90 degrees. And that can, you know, take a toll on people as well. I believe if I have the number right, uh, Medford, my hometown had something like 74 days or something like that, which is more than 20% of the year, right? Indeed. And what uh, Larry told me specifically about Medford is that they likely would have broken the record as well. They had a number of days that were in the high 80s, but there was just a thick blanket of wildfire smoke over the city that sort of moderated the temperatures. And so, you know, I think that they tied for their fifth most number of 90 degree days, but they likely would have had many more if it weren't for the blanket of wildfire smoke. So, you know, pick your poison. I mean, it's hot and it's smoky. 
I don't think that anybody who lives in Medford would have traded the wildfire smoke for cooler temperatures. Yeah, anyone who's been down to the valley there knows that um, you know the smoke, whether it's billowing in from Oregon or up from California, when it gets into the Rogue Valley, it stays. It doesn't go anywhere, um, especially during the summer and when there's not a lot of air movement. So back to the Portland area, what what do we know looking back on on you know? who died of of the heat wave and where they died in the city or in Multnomah County? So I've over the years talked several times to a professor at Portland State University named Vivek Shandas, who studies the urban heat island effect. And this is basically you have some neighborhoods where, you know, you don't have the tree cover that other neighborhoods have. There's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of cement, there's not a lot of airflow. And so these neighborhoods tend to naturally, not naturally, unnaturally, Mm. be hotter than other neighborhoods. And these are typically neighborhoods where you see larger communities of people of color, lower income people, more renters, uh, places like Coley and Lentz, Hazelwood, Centennial, the Powell Hearst Gilbert neighborhoods. And these are the same neighborhoods where we saw the highest concentrations of deaths during the heat dome. So basically, I mean, just put yourself on let's say 15th and not or something uh, in uh, leafy Northeast Portland might be in some cases, 10 or 15 degrees cooler there than, you know, out on 122nd and division, for example. Absolutely. We actually, soon after the heat dome, uh, I went out with uh, Professor Shandas to about, I think it was 92nd and Holgate, and he had all of his temperature sensing equipment and we took a temperature there uh, and then drove straight down Woodstock from, you know, the Powerhurst Gilbert neighborhood all the way into East Moreland. And you could just watch the temperature drop as the tree cover increased. As we do in the journalism industry, when there's an anniversary, we we look back at this artificial passage of time. But um, any other takeaways looking back at you know the heat dome. I know that our you know, our public agencies are still working to to get the the promised um, AC units and cooling mechanisms and whatnot for people who might be more vulnerable. But other takeaways that you're aware of uh, looking back. Well, and and talking to to Michael Wainer and Larry O'Neill, uh, one thing that struck me was that you know while they said that the the exact you know phenomenon that led to the heat dome are unlikely to form again, the temperatures that we saw with it, or perhaps temperatures close to that, are going to become more common as climate change continues to impact the region. So what Larry told me is that we may need to redefine what we call a heat wave, you know, where a heat wave before may have been upper 80s and 90s. In 10 or 20 years, a heat wave may be more like 105 or above. One thing that really hit home for me is that the heat dome really kind of disrupted what we thought we knew about what was possible in terms of temperatures in the Pacific Northwest, you know. And so what we used to rely on, historical patterns, mm-hmm. are no longer reliable predictors of what we'll see in the future. And so there's still a lot to learn. Okay. Uh, well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk a bit more with Cale Williams, who covers environmental issues for the Oregonian in Oregon Life. All right, Kale. So the topic of climate change is always on people's minds here in Oregon. And in particular, um, you did some recent reporting on on how young people uh, are faring and, and coping with not just the heat dome and rising temperatures, but everything. Um, can you talk about this climate change report that came out of the state and some of the youth you spoke to? 
So this report uh, was part of the executive order that Governor Brown signed uh, a couple years ago on climate change, uh, and it commissioned the the Oregon Health Authority to talk to youth around the state to see how climate change was impacting their mental health. One of the young people I spoke with was Eliza Garcia. She was about 19 in September of 2020. She was living in Roseburg, recently moved back there uh, after the pandemic shut down school in Eugene, where she was going to college. Uh, the Archie Creek fire was burning nearby in Glide, and she was working at a fast food restaurant, working the drive-through. And she recalled having some people coming through and just being like, "What are you doing here? Why don't? Why aren't you evacuating?" She said the sky was black, you know, and that a number of the places that she had gone to as a child, waterfalls, hikes that she loved, uh, had burned in the fire, and that really left a mark on her. Since then, you know, she's been experiencing fear and anxiety. Uh, she feels the need, like she needs to be working on climate issues all the time. And if she's not, you know, it gives her this kind of unsettling pit in her stomach. Uh, and she was one of several young people I talked to who said that the impacts of climate change, whether it's the heat dome or the wildfires or the drought, uh, are really creating this sense of dread within them about what their future holds. Why did uh, Oregon want to commission this report? You know, I think that it's really important. I mean, this is my own take. It's important yeah. to to take care of the mental health of young people. And I think that the that state leaders have realized that to a certain extent. I mean, one of the things that that a number of these young people told me is that they often feel like when they speak to adults uh, or older folks about climate change, that they're sort of infantilized, that, you know, older people refer to them as inspiring. And, you know, it's so great to see such passion mm. amongst the younger generation about such an important issue. But older people say that and then don't often take the action necessary to do anything about the problem, uh, which is one of the really frustrating things for a lot of the young people I spoke to. So I think it's great that the state did this report. I think it acknowledges a problem that has kind of festered without getting its proper due. But a report is just a report. And a number of the young people I spoke to said that, you know, it's great to have this problem acknowledged. But if it's just more words, <laughs> then, you know, that's all that it is. Are there any policy proposals or anything you heard from youth you spoke to that they want to see Oregon lawmakers or federal lawmakers take steps to address? Well, there were not firm policy proposals within this report. Uh, there were recommendations um, about including more young people in decision-making processes, creating spaces for young people to have their voices heard. But the report itself did not offer any firm policy suggestions. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, as a, you know, we're both in our uh, late 30s, early 40s, that when we look at the Senate and we see 90 year olds um, in government, and we don't feel represented, you know, just in terms of the age gap, imagine how people in their uh, in their teens or early 20s feel. That's a, that's yeah. a huge, huge difference. A bunch of the young people I spoke to, you know, said that they have found ways to help their own mental health mm. uh, 
most of them had gotten involved in climate activism in one way or another. Uh, Eliza Garcia is pursuing a career in, you know, climate policy. Uh, and it does make them feel better to be surrounded by like-minded people, other people who care so passionately about this issue. The problem is reaching beyond those activist circles and, and finding a space to be heard amongst the larger public. Well, uh, any other youth-related things I should have asked you about or you would want to hit on um, from from that report that we didn't address? To reiterate, you know, this was a, a, a study that pulled together young people from, you know, all corners of the state, from all walks of life, uh, and included a number of anonymous quotes, um, you know, and one of them that I'll read, this one really struck home for me. It was talking, uh, one young person who was talking about, you know, what it's like to relate to older people, and they said, They've already lived their futures, but I still don't know what mine's going to look like because of this existential threat. And so it's like yelling at the wall about like this really scary thing, but not really hearing anything back. Yeah. And it can be paralyzing, right? Because the scope of it is so huge. Like when you're talking about a, a global issue that affects everyone, that's enough to mess with you regardless of how old you are when there's no clear path forward. Well, there is a clear path forward, and you know it's it's essentially the 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 swift and dramatic reduction of greenhouse gases. And Oregon has definitely taken some steps in that regard. You know, there's the climate protection plan, there's the clean fuels program. There are a number of policies that are being put in place now. But as progressive as they are, they still do not match up very well with what scientists say is necessary to avoid the most dramatic and devastating impacts of climate change. Yeah, I think maybe that's what I was alluding to, that maybe we know what to do, but uh, we we don't seem to have the the gumption to do it. And by we, I mean, you know, people in, in government. Yeah. For the most part. Political will. And it's, that's yeah. what everybody's looking for. Well, um, thank you so much for your reporting on these important issues and for taking time to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Kale's recent stories in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. And if you're a fan of the show or are interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts, shoot us an email at advertise at Oregonian.com. Until next time.